From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. For its entire history, the American South, its plantations, its farms, its wealth, has operated at the intersection of agriculture, labor, and the health of the people who sow, harvest, and reap. The labor of the enslaved, those of rural poor whites, the physical and emotional dangers both both faced, these have been examined by scholars much less well understood is the experience of Latino immigrant farm workers in the American South. Who are they? What do they do? What specific exposures do they face? To help us understand their lives, their role in Southern agriculture, their experiences, we are joined today by one of the most interesting and accomplished scholars of the American South, Dr. Shedra Amy Snipes, Associate Professor of Biobehavioral Health at the Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Snipes earned her PhD from the University of Washington in Biocultural Anthropology. Her work focuses on the social behavioral health of pesticide exposure, occupational injuries, and other health disparities experienced by Latino immigrant farm workers. Her other programs of research study the role of citizenship, race, ethnicity, culture, and behavior. Dr. Snipes has served as the Vice Chair of the National Advisory Council on Migrant Health, a position appointed by the United States Health Secretary, has published extensively in the field of migrant worker health, and has earned a number of major grants in support of her work. She's an author, a writer, and a professor of the highest order. Amy, welcome to Take on the South. Thank you, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. It is our delight to have you. Before we get into the um, specifics of this topic, can you just share some of your personal background? Where are you from? How did you get into, into this topic? Uh, what 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 are those kind of personal genealogical connections that tether the past to the present for you? Thank you for asking that question. Um, I don't often tell my story um, as my position and my lens for doing this work. I am what I call a daughter of the South. I was born and raised in Savannah, Georgia, uh, in the Low Country. That extends uh, through the Low Country of South Carolina. I spent my youth tethering myself between Savannah, Hilton Head, Beaufort, and some of the other places in the Low Country, which I call home. Uh, most interestingly for me being in this space is uh, that my entire maternal line uh, stems from Columbia, South Carolina. I spent many summers here. Um, everyone in my family is either here, uses this place as the gathering place, or it is a, it is the place where my ancestors rest. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a place that's very important to me. My family owned um, our first home just blocks from here, uh, and it is the place that now sits at the calif- we, the ground sits under the calif- the, the Coliseum mm-hmm. for USC or USU of SC. Um, and so I have deep roots here. 
I, I will say that this work and what got me into this work and how it's related to uh, my position as a daughter of the South, to answer that question, I entered this space by accident. It was not intentional, but I am grateful. Mm-hmm. I was a primatologist as uh, my primary academic identity and was a graduate student who needed extra funds. Um, I am a first-generation PhD holder um, and, like others, needed financial support. There was a center that was looking for someone who they said they wanted them to be culturally aware. Um, I thought, I'm an anthropologist. I could figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so I did. I applied for the position. I knew nothing of what I needed to know except how to listen, how to observe, and how to observe systematically. I was invited to a space where I could observe farm workers. It was my very first introduction to the work that was happening in that center to break the take-home pathway of pesticides from parents to their children. We were training people to collect data. And as we were there, uh, we were asking farm workers questions that to me were were not aligned with, um, it was fully aligned with, with public health and fully aligned with what we know how to measure risk and danger. What it was not aligned with was their perspective as a person who tilled the soil and as a person who was protecting their children from the dangers of tilling the soil. And farmers would answer in ways that indicated, I am not I'm not worried about my child's exposure because I protect them from those risks. I work hard to protect them from those risks. And we weren't asking how they were doing that. We were only recording that people were not worried. Mm. And so we missed the fact that worry was there because they were still taking the steps to worry and the steps to protect. So I became interested in that work Um, I also saw these hierarchies based on race, class, language, um, even immigrant status. And so I stopped my work with primates almost immediately. And I turned myself to the face of this work that connects me to my own history of working the soil. Mm. Um, I saw in that space the faces of my grandmother and great-grandparents who did this work uh, without um, consent. And so I want, and in some ways farm workers still do that because of the, the legal and other pressures that exist. So I turned my face to that work several years ago. It's been over 25 years um, since I broke the space of being a primatologist and entered into the space of being a humanist connected to justice, culture, and health for farm workers. That was very poetic. The the role that chance plays in our lives, our mm-hmm. academic lives, is often un- underestimated, isn't it? I mean, here you have just a kind of a happenstance. You apply, you shift fields entirely. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that that shift is, is emotionally very important for you Absolutely. and empowering as well. Absolutely. And it's probably going to affect many more people than if you'd have stayed in your original field. Right? I don't know, but I, but I like to think so. Mm. I suspect it is. I suspect it is. So... Let's let's get an aerial view of um, your topic today. When we're talking about migrant farm workers um, in the South, okay, 
what what kind of numbers are we talking about? And when did it really start, Amy? When 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 did this this presence in the South start? I suspect it's deeper and older than most people think. But Absolutely. Could you give us a sense of origin? So first, I'll, first I will start there with the sense of origin before I talk about existing numbers. Okay. So um, farm workers everywhere uh, became important as ag and food safety became important. We know in our in our current space that. Um, the UK is dialing back on people's access to certain fruits and vegetables right now uh, because they cannot supply an adequate food source for things like tomatoes and cucumbers. Mm. In order to guarantee the food source, we have always undergirded that through labor, Mm -hmm. Uh, through safe labor, through other immigrant labor, through the labor of, of, of our poor and now through migrants. The, how this started was through those through those various populations. So when slavery ended, we needed another group to do the work. Um, it transitioned to poor whites. After that, it did not jump immediately into Latino migrant workers. Uh, there were uh, Asian workers, in particular Chinese, then Japanese, uh, brought into various places uh, to ensure the crops. And um, later, migrant and seasonal farm workers who were Latino primarily because of location, Mm-hmm. Ease. There are uh, congressional policies that allowed for the recruitment of Mexican, in particular Mexican workers, mm-hmm. to the American South and to other places. And then the Bracero mov- movement, um, where workers were recruited through policy mm-hmm. in a way that would provide a pathway to citizenship um, and a pathway to work. So those starting places are our foundations for the growth of migrant seasonal farm workers who are Latino in the U.S. Numbers, where are we now? Uh, we don't have adequate numbers because many farm workers are undocumented or travel we, what we call shuttle across the border, moving back and forth, mm. um, or just move without full documentation, or there are ways to come documented and then stay and then move in and out of various statuses that are counted in different ways. Yes. Um, for example, North Carolina and South Carolina have the highest number of H-2A workers. It's a special agricultural worker visa uh, that um, where there are between, I believe, depending on the year, 80 to 150,000 just H-2A workers, which is a high number per state. Other workers, however, we don't have an enumeration. We estimate that in the U.S. there are between three and five million Latino farm workers who are migrant and seasonal working in the American South. It's about 40% of that number, so it's a great percentage of individuals working between uh, the the ag-producing states. So Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, North Carolina, and we don't see as many ag, uh, Latino agricultural workers, um, but they also exist in Alabama and Mississippi. Do you, do you know why the, there's a difference there, Amy? I mean, why are they concentrated in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida, but less pronounced in Alabama and Mississippi? There are some, um, what some people call push and pull factors. Not every scholar appreciates those words, uh, but there are factors that motivate movement and that support movement, and some of those are policy and some of them are are informal. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, some of the policies that shape ag in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Florida is through the, the use of the H-2A visa currently. Before the H-2A visa existed, however, there were um, there's chain migration, mm-hmm. right? Strategies where if someone does well and is supported, then then certainly they're invited back. I think what I have witnessed in my ethnographic work, however, are informal ties matter. Mm-hmm. Um, almost in the way that I informally began this work, the informal ties ended up bringing in families. Mm-hmm and invited them through pathways that were not disclosed. They were, they were invisible pathways. They were, there are labor trafficking issues that abound and that can abound in the American South in ways that they cannot abound in other places. Um, there is a, a written rule of um, the Southern Greece that affords an individual trust or that affords businesses trust um, and without having to be completely transparent in where people came from. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the amount of labor trafficking, even when an, empl- when an employer makes good on their word, right? So labor trafficking is not always the place where we see someone who was downtrodden. Many times labor trafficking, the way it looks for farm workers, is that an individual will meet someone in Mexico a company representative, and they will guarantee safety. They will guarantee a fair wage. They will guarantee housing. They'll guarantee childcare if someone travels with their with their child. Someone will come in once a week from a clinic and see about and see about the workers, and so they will shuttle them across in a way that does guarantee a safer route than if someone came on their own. Um, and so, for someone who's looking to escape a situation in Mexico, this is an option. And the American South has yeah. has a, has maneuvered itself where some of that is more possible here to sustain the labor. Now, I'll say other states want to do it and haven't and have been less less successful. Um, labor shortages exist in some places in ways that they don't exist in the American South. And a piece of it is because those relationships began, um, were sustained, were built. Um, they keep going, perhaps even without individuals revisiting, because now we had chain migration in place, mm-hmm. and individuals in Mexico and other parts of uh, southern, the Southern Americas, know that this is a comfortable space, mm-hmm. and so they create their own pathway sometimes oh. to exist in a previously traversed path. Let me let me unpack this shuttling a bit more Mm -hmm. because I'm certain that most people have no idea about this. So as I understood you, um, company representatives go into Mexico Mm -hmm. and actively recruit migrant workers to come into the US and the American South in particular Mm -hmm. with very specific provisions. Okay, you're going to be paid this, housing, uh, childcare. Are these things provided by the company? Is that how this works? Or is it something that they said, well, our state is more likely to give you these. Is that how this works? No, I don't think it's, it's, it's not written in policy. Okay. And, um, and it's not, to my knowledge, uh, state or federal provision dollars. Okay. To my knowledge, again, I am not a local representative of anyone's company, but what I have observed mm-hmm. is when they work for a certain company, the company will pay for the housing. Now, it is also 
not unusual or the farmer will pay for the housing. Mm -hmm. It is not unusual and goes within the branch of some agricultural exceptionalism um, where there are certain policies that are carved out that, that allow agriculture to provide housing for its employees the same way that someone else might allow housing, create housing for their employees. So there are employee provisioned mm -hmm. migrant camps okay. that house temporary workers and so it's completely legal mm -hmm. for someone to create housing as long as it's it meets a certain standard. It is certainly okay for that housing to exist. And so in that way, they're taken care of. Um, there are also standards for what one does when housing is provided. So it's, there should be. There's not always potable water. Um, ways to disclose through healthy sanitation. Um, but the other things, the guarantees that come along with childcare, someone from the community coming to check on other medical needs and such, those are arrangements that one makes with various pieces of their community. And so one might have an arrangement with a local clinic, which the clinic is happy to serve because they also have mandates to serve underserved and um, perhaps even migrant populations. And so they are not a part of the shuttle. Um, they don't condone the shuttle. They don't create the shuttle. They don't create the pathway, but they're there to serve when an individual arrives. Or sometimes you pay private doctors. Mm -hmm. So there are private doctors who help the company or help the farm to maintain the health status of the workers. If, I'll say this much, if they are also H-2A workers, federally they have to guarantee that. H-2A workers, however, are not shuttled. They're brought through a federal process. Right, right. Interesting. I, my gut feeling is, and you can absolutely correct me if I'm wrong about this, but to most Americans living in South Carolina, the South, the nation, these are largely invisible communities to absolutely. them. Absolutely. And is that is that partly a function of remote geography, but also a kind of cultural gaze that doesn't want to see them? I, that is not my study, and that's not my expertise, so I don't, I don't know, but I will say this. Um, when I give a talk, and whenever I talk about my work, I start by talking about food. We all eat. Mm -hmm. um, even those of us who are poor, we eat. We eat something, and we want to eat fruits and vegetables. Um, it just as a part of our basic health standard. We eat, but the hands that feed us are often invisible. The hands that prepare our food are not invisible, but the hands that produce our food are often invisible. Now, I want to include farm owners. I want to include farm managers. They are often people who work hard, without the rewards um, who, who own and operate farms. So I don't want to paint a, a broad brush of individuals who are not hardworking and fair. But the people who are most vulnerable are those without the safety and the protection of a legal standard. The people who have not just made a decision on their own to travel without documents, but were invited to travel without documents. Mm -hmm. I don't think people are aware of that as they consume their food. I don't think that people are aware of the fact that people who were invited to work without documents um, and who were brought to work 
without documents, intentionally brought to work without documents. Um, work as the poor. A friend and colleague, uh, Kathy Sexsmith, does work on this uh, paternalistic relationship when that happens, where the worker is almost completely dependent upon the owner for for authentic goodness and provision and everything, even a ride to Walmart to get medicine, right? That one is completely dependent on that relationship and the authenticity of that relationship, which may be authentic, but also paternalistic and stripping of power. Mm. Um, so everyone's every existence, even the hiding of that individual, which looks like protection, but it is also benefiting often the employer that brought them. It is highly problematic, but we don't think about those when we consume our food. And so I am grateful to every food producer in the U.S. because they sustain our food supply. They help you and I to be healthy and to eat the food that we enjoy and need. Mm -hmm. But I'm also grateful for the people who sacrifice without knowing. And I also work very intentionally to not only expose their needs, but to do something about it. And so that's, I think, one of the reasons why I work at this intersection of policy and um, anthropology to, uh, and public health mm -hmm. to create spaces where the needs of those communities are met and they're met in the policy space, they're met in the clinical space, they're met in the public health space, and they're met for individuals to exist in happiness. As, as part of your work, Amy, do you... Do you um visit these camps? Absolutely. Mm. Um, Could you tell us what the typical experience is like if there is such a thing? Not, there's a broad range, okay. a very extensive range, mm -hmm. dependent on the resources, the will of the employer. Yeah. Sometimes not just the resources, but also mm. the will of the employer. Um, many, I'd say the most frequent, um, the most typical, physical space is um, lacking internal potable water. There is usually some external spout uh, by which an individual can gain water. There's usually an external shower and there is usually some external um, bathroom facility. It's usually concrete walls that are neither heated nor cooled. They're often not doors or windows. Uh, there, there is an entry space, there's an entry doorway and, and, and window spaces, but often not windows and doors. Um, when one arrives, you arrive with a, with a mattress on the floor and usually some covering for, for the bed, a table, maybe a refrigerator and electricity. That's typical. But I've also seen them be quite delightful, mm. uh, much like hotel experiences. Um, mm. And then I've seen them range in between. Mm. Uh, so, but the typical is is the place where um, humans should not live. So when you've gone to visit these places, um, and I'm, I know you're doing a lot of work when you're there, but f for from our perspective, just help us understand a sort of day in the life of a migrant worker. What time does work start, stop? What happens? What are they doing? So this is highly dependent on crop. Mm -hmm. And we should also know that there is 
usually, usually, but not always, not a crop where one can work all day. Uh, there are crops where individuals can work all day, but usually one can't work all day. So let's take cherries, for example. Um, a cherry, when it is harvested, needs to be harvested in the very early morning and not in the sunlight or else the skin will burst once it enters into kind of the vat where it's collected. And who wants broken skin cherries, a consumer will not purchase those. And so one has to be very careful about how it's picked gently and also pick it outside of the bright sun. Mm -hmm. So that kind of crop where the skin might burst will need to be harvested very early in the morning. So an individual might wake up at about 3.30, make tacos and um, serve some food for their children um, or their spouses or the people that they live with and they will eat breakfast. If there is a truck that picks an individual up, that truck will arrive four o'clock in the morning, maybe a little bit after. Mm. Um, but you'll get into the field quite early, usually around 4.30, because you want to be there to have enough time to harvest before the sun comes up. Mm. At about 6.30 or seven, that work has to stop, depending on the day. Yes. If it's not, if it's cloudy, we can keep going. But if not, um, which makes the work pr both precarious and also um, unpredictable. Yes. So one doesn't know how much they're going to make there. You often are paid by how much you can pick. So it's to your advantage to pick as much as you can, as fast as you can, which induces an environment where injury is likely to happen. Indeed. So this is not wage labor. This is. It's usually yield labor. Yield labor, right. Uh, but sometimes it is, it, it's wage labor. And the yield labor actually has to yield enough that an individual would at least make minimum wage. Okay. Or else the employer doesn't see it as, as viable. Sure. So that happens. Once that's over, an individual might move to the next crop that can be picked in the middle of the day, usually nearby. So then you move to the next crop. Depending on your availability, you might move into a crop that can be harvested at night. For example asparagus is usually cut at night and it's cut with with a knife like with a, a kind of sith is there a reason why it's harvested at night because also if you harvest it during the day it will burst with, open so you oh, need its coolest hours well i never yes and so um so then you might move into into using your sith to harvest asparagus okay. and that's collected at night and they turn on these big kind of football uh. lights in the field uh. Uh, to light the way and then you can work berries for example those are things that you want to pick you can pick them during the day but you want to be careful about picking them during the day because the, the skin will burst sure. for example things that have a harder skin apples pears, bananas, oranges, those can be picked almost at any hour. And then you have some internal crops, mushrooms, um, other things that are, that are uh, created inside of a greenhouse, for example, or inside of a growing house. Those also can be harvested nearly at any time. Mm -hmm. Is um, cotton something that's harvested too? That's an interesting story. And so um, cotton is is the historical crop of the of the American South and one that I have a very emotional relationship with. Um, in my postdoc, well, it, I'll start here. Cotton is not supposed to be harvested by hand. It is difficult to harvest mm. by hand, yeah. as we know, and um, 
and there are there's machinery that should do it mm-hmm. and that should do it quite well yeah. for the crafty and efficient farmer who knows that the machines are not as precise as a small human hand mm-hmm. yeah. um, it is most efficient because of the the reduced cost of migrant labor to have someone go in after the machine and handpick the remaining cotton. Now, the reason why this is significant for cotton is because legally, because cotton is supposed to be a purely mechanistic crop, other than preparing and weeding, certain things can be applied to cotton that cannot be applied to other fruits and vegetables where there's human um, harvest. Mm-hmm. So, you may apply things that we know to be lethal to humans on a mechanistic crop because it's supposed to be harvested by a machine. Mm-hmm. So when that's allowed to be sprayed to increase the yield of the harvest, and then humans then go in to be exposed to the residual compounds, Here's the problem where we think our government, we think that our policies, we think that our spaces, right? We're so, again, the trust. Mm-hmm. These are built into the fabric of the American ideal. Mm-hmm. These are built into the fabric of the American South that we trust our institutions to work. I trust our institutions mm-hmm. to work. They don't always, because I don't know that everyone is aware, or even that our federal governments are even always aware of the fact that humans go into the fields to harvest crops that are not meant for humans to harvest. Mm -hmm. And so humans are not supposed to be harvesting um, cotton. Uh, At times they do. Mm -hmm. Very brutal. Um, Can you tell us about your work on that kind of harvesting during the pandemic in particular? Because I know, mm-hmm. and I've heard you speak on this very passionately and very informatively, there was an attempt, or at least a gesture, towards the use of um, protection, so gloves and masks and what mm-hmm. have you. But that that desire hits the reality, right, of people who are paid by the yield. Mm-hmm. Um, PPE, what? who gave it out? Mm-hmm. Did farm laborers use it? And and what were some of the challenges they faced in that particular context? Everybody faced challenges during mm-hmm. COVID-19, but especially migrant farm workers. So I, I just want to pull us back to that first moment when we were all panicking and didn't know a lot, including our leaders. Yep. Um, yep. But in not knowing a lot, there was a first wave of who was a protected class of worker and an essential worker, then that that way that list grew. Um, but on that initial list were farm workers, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, included with our clinical staff and the folks who were working very hard and dig- diligently to keep us alive. Uh, but farm workers were keeping us alive also when we were completely uncertain about even the transmission of the disease. That's right. By rate, certainly not by sheer number, but by rate of death farm workers experienced more death than clinicians because we just didn't know. And if we think about how migrant labor worked and migrant housing worked, you are allowed in some states to put as many as 18 people in a, in a room. It was 
completely impossible for an individual to to move around, to isolate oneself. And so there are cases of entire migrant camps losing 100 people or more. Um, in those cases, it came to four that, that the rate of death, so, so certainly not sheer number, but the rate of death was higher for farm workers than even our, our clinicians. Mm. And so I just wanted to provide mm -hmm. that context. During that time, I think farm workers faced some of the same issue around the unavailability of PPE, which we know will happen in any flu-like pandemic. Um, and so it wasn't available for farm workers. Um, I do know, however, that the stories that have been given to me around the availability of PPE, when an employer could get it, they wanted their employees to have it. Now, this may have been by grace or just sheer um, desperation, because when one is losing workers and workers are sick, you don't want them to be sick if your bottom line is affected. Mm. Um, farm workers were afraid sometimes to disclose their illness, because when they did, the entire team sometimes was isolated and then everyone else was angry because the work by yield didn't happen. There was no protection of wage. There's no protection of space. There's no protection of resource. And so individuals would not disclose if they were sick or positive, which then led to further spread. So given just the, the nationwide lack of PPE, the increased rate of spread because of the close housing conditions and the close working conditions, and then the, the extra pressures of not having income or being let go if you were sick, it all worked together to, to increase the spread. Farm workers were frightened. Um, they weren't receiving information in, in the same ways that you and I uh, were. Some of it was language, some of it was just access. Um, but they were frightened because of what they did not know. But, in the, but if I can back up a little bit, PPE has always been this, this push and pull for farm workers um, and for owners. Owners will say, this stuff is expensive. I pay for it and people don't use it. I'm not gonna waste my time paying for stuff that people don't use. Because when I think about PPE, um, I also think about its need to protect an individual from something like a chemical, right? And so mm -hmm. it, it would be used to protect an individual from a harm or a hazard at work. Mm -hmm. In the additional space, um, workers will say, we don't get it, we aren't supplied the PPE. And then in the third space is again that workers are paid by yield. So even before COVID-19, I would write in, in, in grants or in papers, there is every incentive to take the PPE off. Mm -hmm. yeah. It is hot, it's burdensome. We, we all know what it's like to wear a mask now. Yep. They mm -hmm. can be hot and burdensome. Imagine doing that in 98 degree weather plus humidity in the sun with gloves mm -hmm. and hard boots and a long sleeve shirt and long pants. There's every incentive to roll the sleeves up. There's every incentive to take a mask off. There's every incentive to remove the gloves and then expose oneself knowingly yes. to the danger because your immediate need is not to be protected from the 
the long-term effects of routine pesticide exposure, it is to gain money today to feed my family. And so the pressures of poverty create spaces where we make decisions that put ourselves at increased risk. And so um, PPE is always a difficult space for me because employers say they don't want to provide it because it's expensive and people don't use it. And at the same time, people don't use it because they can't. In order to make the wage that they need to survive, an individual has to take it off. There's every incentive to take it off. I'll end here. Um, farm workers often work a seasonal crop. You need to make as much as you can for the year. There's every incentive to work as much as you can, as fast as you can, because taking the PPE off means that you may have money when the work ends. Every farm worker's reality is that the work will end, the work will stop at some point. And so that, that hinging of PPE is not just the PPE alone, it's also linked into our agricultural policies around pay and yield um, and also just basic protection. Such a vicious intersection, isn't it, between the desire for high yield, the sacrifice of your personal health, an impossible position. As I listen to you, Amy, as an historian, it just sounds like something out of the 19th century. Mm. It has the feel of all of that. And frankly, and one of the reasons we're doing this interview mm. is to not remind people of this because they don't really know to begin with. It's to educate them that this exists. And most of us live in a very privileged bubble mm -hmm. where we consume the food that is produced by the invisible hand. Mm -hmm. And there's a twist on Adam Smith of ever I heard mm -hmm. one, right? Um, but also the kind of complete unknowingness, mm -hmm. our unwittingness, perhaps our desire not to know, I don't know the origins of it, that this actually happens. And it happens... Mm -hmm much closer than you think, Absolutely. kind of just down the road. Yes. I remember when, when uh, I first came to South Carolina, I would spend quite a lot of time driving out of Columbia, South mm -hmm. Carolina, because that to me was the most interesting part. Mm -hmm. 20 minutes down the road and you're in a different world. Mm -hmm. And that's the world that you're talking about, isn't it? Absolutely. I want to think about agriculture as, as not just fruits and vegetables, but for those of us who consume uh, meat, that um, ag labor also extends to livestock, and those conditions are similar. And the, the labor yep. that supports that industry is similar, um, if not the same. And, uh, and those are also spaces that resonate quite strongly. Um, most of the nation's uh, production of chicken, ham, and seafood Mm. is produced in the American South. Mm. And so um, that's another space where migrant labor is critical to our food source and even our food safety, right? The safety of food, just think about like all of the biohazards that come along with the provision of milk, mm. right? And that it is, I was gonna say 90, it is a 100% likelihood that the hands that produce our milk are Latino and migrant and seasonal farm workers at some point, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
shouldn't we secure a, as a part of that bio safety for the food that we consume, the safety of the hands that are there? Um, and so in, in that production, I agree that the knowingness of, of the populace is, is small. We, cons- we consume blindly, we consume with pleasure. And, um, but also I think that when people know, they also feel helpless. They don't know where, what to do. So I also kind of just want to give a little bit of that. Um, as consumers, we, we have some power. Uh, we can choose to pay a little bit more for our fruits and vegetables. Not always, but sometimes that finds its way back to the worker. Not always, but sometimes uh, the food that produces that produces more income for the employer, that employer is able to improve conditions for the employee. Um, That's one space. The United Farm Workers Union, as well as Farm Worker Justice, um, I cannot, but they can list a number of fair wage employers and food producers. And so they have individuals that um, that they recommend consumers to support. And so most people are also not aware of that resource that we can support the producers who produce um, food through fair labor practices. Mm-hmm. And there are there are many who we can support. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, um, by way of kind of a long conclusion, I suppose. Where are we now? I mean, are you hopeful that change is afoot? Is the state, local, municipal, federal, uh, are there new initiatives that are being developed or implemented that help things? Or are we treading water? Or are we going backwards in some ways? As, as we know, our, our federal systems work hand in hand with our state and local policy systems. And in some places, our um, although there are some federal mandates, they are um, implemented by the state and the state policy is what is most important. So every state has a different policy around wage and safety practices in ag, although there are some federal mandates. So for example, HRSA has a federal mandate um, to provide migrant clinics as a gift of Kennedy um, to create that space after um, the, the, the Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta uh, movement and, the, and the, um, the, the great boycott. And so that was a result of that. And so those are federal dollars that are meant to support the medical needs and the clinic-based needs of farm workers uh, nationally. States also support that work, and states, some states do it differently. Uh, so California provides additional resources to provide additional clinics that reach additional workers that goes um, as far as thinking about families and family members of families, and um, not every state can or does or is willing to do that. So there, that's on the kind of clinical end. Um, there's also not unanimous um, guideline on how the EPA functions. So there is the federal EPA, but there are also statewide 
EPAs. And so depending on the funding structure for EPA, which then is the large umbrella organization that sees if someone's using their PPE and to use it you know, appropriately and all of those things, um, there may be only one person who goes out for the state mm -hmm. to mandate those kinds of policies. Other states have more people to mandate that kind of policy. So even when there are legal standards on the books, not every state has appropriately funded a way for those policies to be implemented and to be implemented routinely. Um, so I don't know where we are. I think that was a long way of me saying I'm not sure. I know that there are some legal prote protections. Um, legal protection, the laws have changed. Um, right now there was a, um, it was a, approved by the House but not by the Senate. Um, a way that will create a pathway to citizenship for farm workers. We're, we're, we're hopeful that that might be passed at some point mm -hmm. um, in, in a Senate, which would guarantee some protections for farm workers simply by means of citizenship. We'll see. Yeah. So it, it is a dance mm -hmm. between federal policy, between local policy, um, but also the local willingness of the people. Why I work so hard to tell these stories um, and to do the work on the ground is because knowledge in some ways is power not to be trite, um, but to create the power that also allows um, farm workers themselves to be their own voice. Farm workers to know their rights, uh, farm workers to know that collectively, you have power when you're producing food. Right? There is power in the production of, of a universal need. Yeah. And just as Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta figured out um, that pulling back that power of, of the food that we enjoy is one way to get our attention. Um, I hope that farm workers will take that power and, um, and not just allow me to tell the stories, but to tell their own. Um, but I will do it in the stead I will do it for the folks before me um, to continue to tell those stories and to respond to the need with the data uh, that that have to be there for federal movement. I, I don't demonize every aspect of government. Um, there are certainly policies that are meant to protect workers. Some of it is an exception for ag. There are lots of loopholes that are exceptions for ag that should be, that we need to put something in place. Um, but in the meantime, um, I am hopeful that bringing this kind of podcast and this kind of information to consumers to enlighten ourselves of the food providers and the people who create our food will allow a space for us to push back. There is absolutely nothing I can say that would do justice to your extended conclusion. So I'm just going to say very simply, Dr. Shedra Amy Snipes, thank you for a most enlightening, sobering, and darkly poetic commentary on a topic that we need to know more about. We remain in your debt. Thank you for being on Take on the South. Thank you, Mark. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours.
Find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. Thank you.